the decline gets steeper with every generation. There's great reckoning that is underway in organized religion and therefore the church. We are having that rummage sale that will take a generation or two or three, and the church will never be the same again. And I, you know, maybe God's at work in that to to shake us up. Time will tell. But you're absolutely right that you know, different aspects of the church have become very homophobic, very aligned with some of the ugliest parts of politics in America right now. You know, overtly approving of quite, you know, of you know white Christian nationalism. They're fairly open about it. There's a middle part of the church that, up until recently, had all it ever needed and didn't push itself, didn't embrace risk, uh, did not stretch itself. Maybe wasn't politically conservative, but conserved resources rather than planting new seeds. And then there's other parts of the church that are, in the next ten to twenty years, you know, face existential questions. I, there are estimates between one in three and one in six churches in the next 20 years that are going to close their doors. The pandemic accelerated uh, all of that. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. That's the Reverend John Cleghorn, the pastor of Caldwell Presbyterian Church in the Elizabeth neighborhood of Charlotte, North Carolina. John served at Caldwell since 2008, where he's the minister and head of staff at the church. Caldwell is a progressive, mission-oriented church. At the time when participation in the church and all sorts of religious organizations in America has declined, Caldwell's experienced something unusual, growth. John came to the ministry later in life after retiring from a position as a senior vice president for Bank of America, where he served in various public policy and public relations roles. Before that, John followed in his father's footsteps and worked as a reporter and columnist for the Charlotte Observer. John has deep roots in the South, including growing up in Atlanta. John and I also have another connection beyond growing up in the South. John is the son of Reese Cleghorn, who led the Observer's editorial department during the turbulent changes of the early 1970s. Before that, his dad was the associate editorial page editor of the Detroit Free Press and then became the associate editor at the Atlanta Journal in the 1960s, where he wrote extensively about civil rights for the journal and for magazines like the Esquire and the Saturday Evening Post. Later, Reese built the nationally prominent College of Journalism at the University of Maryland College Park. And he's the author, with Pat Waters, of Climbing Jacob's Ladder, a book about the civil rights movement in the South. Reese played an instrumental role in my life in more ways than one. He was the dean at Maryland when I was a journalism student, and he and other civil rights legends like Hodden Carter, Gene Roberts, and Ben Coleman taught me about the importance of white newspaper editors and reporters to reforming the American South and civil rights. It's not too different from the way John wants to reform the church. 
John is the author of a 2021 book, Resurrecting Church, where justice and diversity meet radical welcome and healing hope. John is working on a second book, due out next year, about the growing movement of churches using their land and property to build affordable housing, which is a response and a part of his idea of reimagining the church and serving those in need in new ways. At a time when church membership in America has declined to 47% in 2020 from 70% in 2000, John writes about the remarkable turnaround of Caldwell, which was on the edge of closure when John became the pastor. John traded his position at the corporate office of the nation's largest retail bank for the dusty dated office at Caldwell. John writes a message about how churches can survive and even be resurrected at the intersections of race, sexuality, class, and faith. John proposes creating something new, but John tells a story not just about the turnaround of Caldwell, but also about his personal transformation. So, John, I just wanted to thank you for joining us. This is a really, for a lot of different reasons, a meaningful conversation for me, not the least of which um, your father, Reese, played a really important and meaningful role in my life. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but he would talk about you and your sister often when he was the dean and when he also stepped down as the dean and was teaching at the university. And um, when I was at the Times and I went through my uh, scandal, I was uh, very much persona non grata in the journalism community. But one of the few people who reached out to me through um, Olive Reed, who was our undergraduate advisor, was was your dad. And he didn't have a message about journalism or sort of like lessons learned or anything like that. But he talked about how depression had been a factor in his family. And he just sympathized and empathized in a way that was, I guess, really, really important to me at that moment. So he's always had um, just a super you know, beyond what he taught me about journalism and beyond what he taught me about civil rights, he's always had an important uh, role in my life. And I think he would be proud of this conversation on one level because what inspired me to actually have this conversation after reading your book was thinking about something from one of my journalism classes there uh, was one of our professors reading Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Right. And part of that, King talks about how we're, we're no more segregated, even though, and I think this is true, even though we've made a lot of progress, than we are on Sundays. And I just really, really thought that after reading your book and hearing about your work and knowing, knowing your family, that um, it would be awesome to have an opportunity to to s- talk about whether the church can survive, thrive, and 
and bring value to the world. So let me hand it over to you. Sorry for the long, long-winded beginning. No, gosh, I don't know how to how to follow that. You got me shaking up here right off the bat. Um, but thank you for that. Uh, in, in immensely uh, encouraging word, both from you and and an echo of, of of dads. He loved being at Maryland. He loved his students and loved you and. And um, but it's the stories that I otherwise would not occur, like the one you just shared that really still touch me. Um, and uh, thank you for the vulnerability of of sharing that. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, we, we do have depression in our, our family. It's a known issue with me as well. And um, it certainly informs my life and my ministry. And so thank you for sharing it. And and. Uh, Dr. King's work for me never gets old. It's so prescient. And um, uh, I read uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, at least once a year. And um, it is still spot on both for culture and, and unfortunately for the the complacent white church that he was writing about in the jail cell in, in Birmingham. Right, right. It's... um. You know, we've, uh, you know, made so much progress, right, since when my parents were growing up or even when when I was growing up um, on issues like like race. But it, it just seems that we have so far to go. You know, you can pick up King's writing from the 1960s and you're like, well, that's a roadmap for today still. <laughs> he had vision, I guess, Um of, of, of really sort of the long run and same thing with James Baldwin and, uh, an yeah. assortment of, yeah, other, other, other powerful writers. I, I was going to start off by just sort of stepping back and asking you a little bit about, you know, it's not every day, you know, that, and I, and I know, I don't know if this is true in the Presbyterian church, but I certainly heard about the Catholics, the Baptists, that there's a shortage of people who want to go into the ministry. And it's not every day that I hear about somebody leaving a senior corporate job like yours at Bank of America mid-career to become a minister. So I was curious what what inspired you and what the transition was like for your wife, your daughters, your family, because you know, that role of being a minister is unlike any other. Like it's it's kind of like the army. You don't just draft yourself. The whole family goes with you. <laughs> um, well, thank you for recognizing that, Jason. I, I know my wife certainly appreciates it too. Um, uh, indeed, it, it was um, kind of a long, securitist path. Um, I uh, was in newspapers, as you know, at first, and then almost went to seminary as I was leaving newspapers, not because I had a crystallized sense of call, but uh, knew I, I wanted to try the next thing after print journalism, but didn't quite know what that was. In turn, I ended up getting a very different uh, opportunity that kept me in Charlotte, including being engaged to, to my wife. And it kept me here and, and gave me those 18 years at the bank, for which I'm, I'm grateful. And just as I'm grateful for every day in, in daily print journalism. But um, thank you for being sensitive to the impact on, on families. It, I'm I'm completely guilty of kind of self-indulgence with this um, (laughs) calling. Uh, It is is a calling, and um, my wife and children have 
given me the room to pursue it. Um, and the Lord has worked things out so that you know, the geographic impact on our family was not significant. And uh, I still work far too much, but uh, I think uh, my wife, figured that out about me fairly early. They're already used to that. <laughs> yeah. uh, guilty is charged. Um, but um, it's uh, it's a privilege to be able to do what one loves, as, as you well know. And um, uh, as long as it's sustaining and life-giving like it is now, um, there's gas in the tank to, to work hard uh, at it. But uh, you're right that it has impacts on lots of families and um, – it's you know the irony is it both both for print journalism and the church in, in many ways I I got to the party about one cup of punch too late. Uh, <laughs> print journalism was you know peaking and and then moving past its peak in my twenties, which were in the eighties, and uh, now journalism excuse me now church organized religion uh, organized churches has also passed its peak. Christendom has has moved beyond the, the center of culture uh, out to the margins. And um, so uh, you know, I joke in the book, that old cliche, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. Well, uh, I, I, in both cases, I got to the party after the peak. But you're doing it exactly the way that I would do it. You know, I, <laughs> I once had a Catholic friend, and it's actually right beside me on my desk. I've been looking for this, and it's right beside me on this desk. He came to me um, at some point. I forget which, where, what change I was making in my life. And he handed me a little Catholic medal with a picture of mm. St. Jude on it. Mm. And he said he's the patron saint of lost causes. Pause. Mm. A bit like you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I both probably needed that medal, and yeah. it also probably said something about. Well, I mean, it, it, thinking about both institutions, I mean, journalism, you know, gets maligned, but in so many ways, it has such power to heal society and make sense of the world. And I think to some extent. You know, in a day and age where community, you know, our communities, our traditional communities are being tethered and broken and families are disconnected, the church, religion in general, has that opportunity too. But it, it seems like with both, you know, both have been, along with our political world, been struggling. And mm -hmm. I, I just wonder whether some of that stuff is ultimately connected to this sense of sort of like um, untethering. And so it's a, it's a really interesting call to have. What was the call like? And were you kind of aware of where the state of things were as you felt that call? Um, first of all, your point about tethering, I, I, I don't want to leave that uh, alone. I, I, I love the parallel the decline in community, the rise of individualism is inherent. Uh, and the decline of civic life and political life is very much a, a tether between journalism and church. And uh, you know, it's been a disruptive time for the last 30 years in, in, in both fields. And now 
both fields are, have the opportunity to pick themselves up and thrive in new ways. And um, uh, I believe journalism is advancing. It's just in a different form than the old giant newsroom with 200 people in it and printing presses uh, on the property. And, and that, that way that my father had it and uh, I had it and you had it for just a moment, but uh, uh, and I had it for just a moment, but um, as, as far as the, so I really appreciate you making that parallel very much going on there in terms of community and, and connection. Yeah, for me, the call, I, I think, was incremental. Um, it was, uh, you know, I was not Saul riding down the road, getting struck off my horse uh, by a lightning bolt and right. parting and seeing Christ in the sky. Um, if it I, were that easy and if it were that clear. <laughs> I've yet to, you know, meet somebody who has that story, although some I've heard some folks. Um, yeah, I grew up in the church. Um, it was second home. Both my parents were elders and um uh, when I, uh, I grew up in Atlanta, where my mother continued to be very, very active in the churches, his dad moved on to other cities and uh, it was just second nature. Um, so and for me, in hindsight, it was a family and a community. So I think it was probably not a surprise that my heart and soul were were open to it um, as I moved through journalism and then through corporate life. And then some of it is just purely logistical. Uh, I had gotten 25 years into the private, well, I was 20 years into the private sector and had thought every several years about pursuing theological education, but it just wasn't practical. I had a wife and children and a mortgage and uh, life's demands. And then um, a Presbyterian seminary of my ilk uh, opened up in Charlotte thanks to the good Presbyterian heritage of this place. And so I was able to go uh, weekends and nights and, and, you know, kind of build an exit ramp out of corporate life. Um, so my call was not sudden and striking. It was boring and incremental, but logical in its, in its own way. Uh, but, also a leap of faith, uh, for sure, that my, my family and my wife had to agree to take with me, for sure. And there's this um, scene in your book where, where you describe uh, the different people coming into the church, and they're of all different uh, backgrounds, white, black, you know, rich, poor, gay, middle class. And I will never forget this line that you write about the demon possessed HVAC system, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and you're giving all these details and then you say something about the church and it's a line like something like the place had been called the first Presbyterian church of the Island of misfit toys or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you pick Caldwell or did they, how did did you end up at the church that you ended up at? I mean, that that does sort of get into the the divine. Um, It it really was interesting. Um, I've been a super active Presbyterian my whole adult life in Charlotte uh, as an elder and going to a big prominent purple church, doing all the things there, the leadership roles and such. Um, and living just a few blocks away from this church that had been dying since its peak in 1960. And uh, I didn't even know it was here. Uh, but oh, wow. As I uh, literally, I, I lived a few blocks from it. But as I wrapped up seminary, 
and had uh, agreed with the family that I needed to try and find a call in Charlotte. Um, the Presbyterian, it's, it's kind of mutual. You put your name out there in churches that are looking for a pastor, uh, you know, look for a match. That's the conventional way to do it. This church had gotten down, had gone from 1,100 members to 12 members and uh, 12. Had, had decided to close its doors when God had kind of a different idea and this ragtag misfit bunch of folks um, started attending and were welcomed and embraced by the nice, traditional, white-haired, octogenarian Calvinists that were here who didn't bat an eye, but just said, if you're here to help us save the church, then we better get busy because we're about out of money. And um, yeah. uh, so yeah, having walked a very traditional Presbyterian kind of upbringing, I had projected myself probably going to any of the 90 Presbyterian churches in and around Charlotte, maybe as an associate pastor to get started and kind of work my way in. But uh, this crazy bunch of folks that uh, had barely avoided closing and barely had two nickels to rub together, uh, decided to interview me and, and give me a chance. And um, I worked here for, uh, for free for a year um, while I was still at the bank, I, I worked wow. part time just to, you know, it was it was a gift to me to get experience, and that allowed uh, the membership uh, as it was recovering, and I had to build some relationship, and and uh, so I ended up being really the most blessed, fortunate uh, person there ever was to be called to a place like this because it turned out it was just, you know, a rocket ship sitting on the launch pad, and all I had to do was uh, strap in. Wow, did you um? grow up in the Presbyterian church and I, cause I'm curious about what the, you know, I come from a, I guess, mostly Southern Baptist background. I was just curious, what's the traditional, what's a traditional Presbyterian church like on, you know, Sunday and during the week? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's changing now, but my um, upbringing was in Atlanta at one of the affluent Presbyterian churches purple and politics and politics weren't really spoken of there, not because of avoidance, but there was just a, a, a cultural harmony there. And so the church um, was active um, in the mission field in what now looks probably like somewhat arm's length ways. But we had a pastor that signed a, uh, a very controversial document in the 60s in Atlanta, siding with Dr. King and so our pastor pushed us out there, and of course, that's where Dad's heart was. So I was exposed to both, you know, kind of good Reformed uh, theology, um, mm. but uh, but the fact that it didn't end at the uh, property line of the church that it needed to go out into the field, and then. Um, uh, and this is in the 1960s, 60s, 70s, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly, and so. Um, you know, uh, Atlanta. Was, what was Atlanta? Oh, you're about to answer the question I was going to ask, which is, yeah. what was well, that was, like? You know, when Atlanta <laughs> shifted from traditional white mayoral leadership to Maynard Jackson and uh, Andrew Young, and uh, Atlanta became, you know, much more of a, a black-led city in those years. And that's where the white flight 
started to begin. I don't know if I told you, but I grew up, part of my growing up was in Cobb County. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, it, it was just very, it was interesting how black Atlanta was mm. and how white Cobb was. And, right. you know, years later, I read about the history of that time with Maynard Jackson and some of the, I guess, the white flight that had begun before that, the redlining and the... Precisely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, that same story that afflicted so many Southern cities of, you know, Jim Crow uh, being followed up by much more subtle forms of Jim Crow and uh, redlining and you know, flat out segregation. and uh, But yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, growing up, to get back to your question, it... It was always in the picture for me, um, I think, as an adult and certainly exiting corporate life. Um, God called me into a place that probably was the the last kind of ministerial context I might have expected, but um, felt gifted by and was able to kind of reach back into my, my soul and, and my past and certainly what my parents taught me what, what dad was a part of in the sixties and the civil rights movement and indulge all that in a, in a congregation that's you know, very diverse, intersectional, statedly progressive, missional in nature, more outward focused than inward, sometimes to its risk. Um, but, uh, but very, uh, you know, very engaged in the city doing the hard work and stubbing our toes and getting it wrong sometimes. And, you know, one of the things you just made me think of something, one of the things that I had thought about you is that you followed your father's footsteps into journalism, but in another way, in thinking about the work he did at the Atlanta Journal and civil rights and change, right, progress and change, you kind of followed his footsteps into the ministry, because in a in a strange way, I could completely imagine if your father was still in journalism, he would be pushing for this same kind of change that 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 you are at Caldwell. Mm. Well, I hope so. I, I hope somewhere he's looking looking down. Um, he he was so formative for me, and um, and indeed, um, he is as hard bitten by journalism as he was from the age of fifteen when he started. You know, writing for the tiny little paper in Somerville, Georgia, where he lived. He even stepped away from daily journalism in the late 60s and joined the movement. Um, so I think he had some of the same kind of wanderlust that that I have of, you know, the fact that journalism ad- advances the civic dialogue and protects democracy and shines light. Um, but then what does it look like to not just be the observer and, 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 and be in the active fight. And so he had a few years um, in the movement himself. And he, I, I, you know, he, he was pleased, I think, when I made this crazy move into <laughs> ministry. Um, and, uh, I mean, he was not, he, he had his own private chapel, uh, kind of, so to speak. And, um, <laughs> but, uh Certainly, the family values that were imbued in me have informed what I've gotten to do in, in ministry and, and activism. Right, right. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me about reading your book is, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect when I picked picked it up, even though we had 
you know, we had emailed about your dad at different points. But I, I was kind of stunned as I was reading the beginning of it. And you were talking about the people of different races and openly embracing LGBTQ uh, populations. In the book, you, you talk about people who are poor, people who are wealthy. And I just think the way you talk about them, which is really interesting, you don't talk about them like, you know, I would say like an anthropologist talking about these groups that you're trying to pull in. You talk about them just as if they are anyone, your normal cisgender white person who is there. And it it just struck me that in reading it, you've, you've embraced a wide variety of people in your church, but truly embrace them, like truly put them in your arms. And I'm just, I'm just curious, was that something that you were thinking of before that you were prepared for that you realized when you were there? How did that, that sort of come about? Well, thank you for the question. They embraced me, um, Jason. I mean, I was, you know, dark suit wearing, white, short, starched shirt, rep tie, senior vice president, Bank of America, and the, the last person to... Did you have a bow tie? Um, sometimes. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that was pretty radical at the bank. I, since then, I wear them unabashedly. But um, uh, but um, I got away with one every now and then at the bank. But, um, but this has been much more about my education here. These folks have embraced me um, and called me to walk with them, you know, one through just every imaginable scenario, a man leaving his wife and coming out and then having to go through uh, being deserted by his children and having faith that one day those those relationships would, would be healed. But, you know, the fact that he, had to be who God made him. And it turns out he's had a lovely life and those relationships have healed, but nothing in life, my very traditional, as you say, kind of cis white gender, affluent, gray haired, you know, prematurely gray haired, you know, kind of post-divorce <laughs> white privileged life prepared me or, you know, um, uh, one of my members being, you know, got caught late at night in uh, a, a tough, part of Charlotte in Crossfire and was murdered or, mm. or, you know, lot, the, the regular life and death of uh, that comes with ministry of lost young children or unexpected deaths. And so I've been, it's more that I have been indulged and embraced and allowed to grow by walking with folks through tra- quote unquote traditional life crises, but also ones that, were you know vastly different from anything I had known personally, and I'm just glad that God gave me the both the opportunity and the, and the humility, perhaps, or at least the the attentiveness to pay attention and um, be present in those moments, if if nothing more, uh, in terms of ministry. And um, God, you know, also gave me 25 years of social capital in a city that is increasingly prominent and important. Um, and so you know, what part of what I get to do is use my social capital to try to advance the causes of, uh, of folks that are often overlooked or underrecognized or, or marginalized. And so 
I've got a lot of that and I get to, I get to use it and it's a great gift to me to be able to do that. And even if I have to annoy and aggravate people, I, I get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a dream. <laughs> yeah, it really is a great privilege. Annoying people to help other people. What's that saying in journalism? The, um, that's it it's it's hilarious you say that's in journalism because pastors would say you say that in, in in ministry and i think both are true yeah right both are both are true and and the great theologian carl bart you know was asked about ministry and he said um i read the new york times in one hand and the bible in the other and um you know, yeah. i i I'm blessed that I get to do exactly that as well. That image together. Yeah. One one of the things that I was curious about, just sort of thinking about your church and your ministry, and I guess this is part driven anecdotally, you know, by talking to some younger people, younger millennials and Jim Wires. And I hear, and this is even among, you know, because I tend to, Regardless of what my political affiliation or views are, I tend to, one thing about me is I tend to be open to anyone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not really given to shutting out uh, voices. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a young woman who's evangelical upbringing, you know, went to um, Liberty University, um, which was Jerry Falwell's right. old school. Uh, but one thing that she was saying to me was she was increasingly untethered coming back to that word from, from the church. And I, I asked her, well, what is it? And she was saying for her, even though she's, you know, a heterosexual woman, the positions on gay rights, the division in politics, politics increasingly coming into the church with some, you know, negative racial undertones. And I was reading recently the study, I think it was from Gallup, and it it talked about how the percentage of Americans who said they belonged to a church in 2020 was like 47%. Uh And that 70, it was 70% in 2020, excuse me, in in 2000. And what, one of the things that sort of like struck me about that was I knew there had been a decline, but I did not know that there had been that huge of a decline between 2020 and 22. And, and then as I dug a little bit deeper, I think a surprising thing for me was that whether it was baby boomers, whether it was Gen X, whether it was millennials, the numbers were all going down. Like for example, you know, 58% 58% of the people who are baby boomers went to the church, but it was a much higher number in 2020. 50% of Gen Xers, but it was a higher number. And the millennials were down to 36%. Right. And it, it just makes, you know, and I, you know, when I looked at the data, it was happening over gender. It was happening regardless of race. It was happening with evangelicals. It was happening with progressives. And I'm just wondering what do you think is driving that trend? Do you think it can be reversed? And I mean, and frankly, is it worth reversing? Hmm. Um, boy, great questions. Um, and your data is is spot on. Um, you're right. Uh, we have moved past the height of Christendom in America and um, in, in, in my life, maybe for yours. I'm a couple of years older than you. Uh, there's a, a, a theologian writer, 
academic who has a great theory, and it's proved out to be true, that every 500 years, the church has a great rummage sale where it hauls everything out to the curb and starts over. And if you go back and you go 500 years ago from now was the Protestant Reformation, 500 years before that was the Great Schism, 500 years before that was Constantine's adoption of Christianity as the official religion, 500 years before that was Christ. Um, so, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cute line, but it turns out to be true. And um, we're living through that right now for very specific and contextual reasons, many of which you've put your finger on. Um, but that is the, the, the same division that grips America has, has gripped the church. And, and quite frankly, and this will sound a little judgmental, but I think the same complacency that gripped the newspaper industry gripped the church. The church got very fat and happy last century. The church I'm pastoring now uh, was started in 1912 and it had 500 members within 10 years in 1922 in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is not much of a place. Um, you know, Christendom peaked in 1960, just as Presbyterianism did. And it's gone downward ever since. And you're absolutely right that the, the decline gets steeper with every generation. There's a great reckoning that is underway in organized religion and therefore the church. We are having that rummage sale that will take a generation or two or three. Um, and the church will never be the same again. And I, you know, maybe God's at work in that to, to shake us up. Time will tell. But you're absolutely right that um, in the you know, different aspects of the church have become very homophobic, very aligned with some of the ugliest parts of politics in America right now. You know, overtly approving of white, you know, of you know, white Christian nationalism. They're they're fairly open about it. There's a middle part of the church that, up until recently, had all it ever needed and didn't push itself, didn't embrace risk. Uh, did not stretch itself, maybe wasn't politically conservative, but conserved resources rather than planting new seeds. And then there's other parts of the church that are in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, face existential questions. I, there are estimates between one in three and one in six churches in the next 20 years that are going to close their doors. The pandemic oh, wow. accelerated uh, all of that. What the pandemic did do for us was make the church adopt some new ways. You know, we can argue whether or not online presence is good or bad, but we had to learn how to do that. Um, we had to. We are learning how to redefine community. We are learning that meaningful interaction with the church isn't just or even only or primarily Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It might be uh, feeding those experiencing homelessness at the shelter, or it might be working with the youth, or it might be uh, traveling to the border, or it might be going to a you know, theology on tap meeting and talking controversial ideas about what the gospel does and doesn't mean over a beer. The, the church is 
you know, been experimenting with those things. And now the pandemic and this cultural shift in America that has lost the church generations that may or may not ever come back are going to, you know, this is the disruption to use corporate talk that's going rocking the church. And um, it's going to be rocking the church and the church is going to be scrambling to redefine itself for decades to come. Yeah, one of the, and to your point about it being, it's sort of rocking the church. One of the things that I've always wondered about, just giving you a piece of my background and thinking about those points, you know, the, the thought of what sort of the church had become. And I like the way that you described this idea of there was this, there's this part of the church that's sort of apparently homophobic and you know, latently racist. And then there's almost this complacent part of the church that lands in the middle and it probably runs across all denominations. I just wonder about like, is there a way to heal some of the wounds that exist? Um, You know, so like in my background, I grew up in the church, grew up Southern Baptist. I, um, I was the guy who gave the youth sermon every year. Actually, you'll love this. I, I gave a youth sermon about Jeffrey Dahmer, if you can believe that, and God's forgiveness and finding. Oh, wow, God. I'd love to hear that. Go back yeah. and get that up for me. Sometime. It's it's on VHS. <laughs> it's on VHS somewhere. I will dig it up. But but one of the funny things in VHS, so it, it captures part of the congregate congregation, and you can see the heads and the heads nodding and then the heads shaking at the same time. Uh, 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 I went to seminary when I was 41. There's still time for you. (laughs) So I am, you know, I do miss those days and it, and it kind of comes back to actually that piece. So I was, um, I was very involved in the church, very involved. It, you know, you called it a second home. It, it was my second home, you know, my deepest relationships, my deepest friends, my role models for how to be adult were like our ministers and the volunteers and, you know, of course my parents, but it was, it was a home for me. You know, I moved a lot when I was a kid, we moved from Maryland to Texas Mm. to Georgia to Virginia, but the one constant, right. was this community that this church community that floated and when I when I was in high school, there were a couple of events, like some of which I talk about, some of which I don't talk about, but I might as well go all in. One of them was, uh, and the one that I talk about is, uh, when I was in Atlanta, I went to a church called Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, which is in Marietta. Its minister was a guy named Bryant Wright, who eventually led the um, Southern Baptist Convention. But he was a relatively progressive dude for 1980s uh, Georgia, and actually I'm sure he still is um, today, he has a mission ministry, but we had women ministers. We had male pastors and women ministers. And so when I came to Virginia, they didn't allow at the church that I went to women pastors. So as a high school student, I asked a question in Sunday school just out of curiosity. I was like, why don't we allow uh, women ministers? And my Sunday school teacher, who was a woman, was like, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I am going to go check for you. And the Sunday school teacher, the head of the Sunday school program, sent a message back through her about a Bible verse about uh, 
women not teaching men of a certain age. It was like 13 or whatever it is. And then I, being the naturally curious and critical thinking high schooler that I was, I said, well, then why, why are you teaching us? Okay, so then that leads to the next week. The Sunday school director comes in. Instead of answering the question, he gets up and says, you know, the devil divides us, mm. looking right at me. And that was like an arrow into my heart. And then um, not too long from then, we had a counselor who worked at the church. It was a growing, it was a big church, and it was like a, a licensed counselor. And someone found out that he either was or may have been gay, and uh-huh. he got fired. Now, yep. most people didn't know about that, but I, I, my dad was a deacon, was kind of plugged in, and I just thought to myself at that point, like, there's something that feels very wrong about this. I wasn't, I I hadn't solidified my opinions on gay rights or anything like that, but I, I was like, there's something that feels very, very wrong about that. And then I, um, I went off to Liberty University myself, only lasted a semester, but one of the things that I worked for the student newspaper And, you know, wanted to cover the big news on campus. And we constantly found um, articles being killed by the administration. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, it was very disappointing. So, you know, for me, that was a moment where I thought, does the truth matter to you all? Does Does the truth matter? Because that's what journalism was about to be. And the issues over race and um, sexual orientation reared their heads again in school. And, you know, I had debates with my RAs and other people, but instead of debating the issue, it quickly, it always turned to like saving my soul. And I, it kind of broke me. And the way coming back to that word again about being tethered uh, years later, decades later, a, a friend of mine, I was telling him the story and she said, well, it was the untethering of your sense of belonging. Yeah, That's yes. all you knew, and it was broken. And, you know, I've tried to go back to church. I've visited churches that I liked that surprised me that were progressive. But I, for people like me, do you think there's a way that we can heal and our relationship with the church can heal? Thank you for that uh, story. Gosh, I mean, on the one hand, it's heartbreaking. On the other hand, you are in such a large group of people that tell the same story and you really put your finger on it because earlier in the conversation, Jason, you, you said, you know, very naturally and fondly that the church was your community growing up and, and it was always there and you were always there and it was your, your people, which didn't have anything, you know, well, was not primarily concerned your your impression that feeling you had of belonging there was not shaped by some dogma or some you know piece of polity or, or church policy um, and then that was disrupted uh, when it came down to some individualistic view of in your case why women don't preach and then you being singled out that way and and you're right it, it that has happened so many times. We welcome new members all the time, including uh, just yesterday after worship of people who do find their way back. You asked, is there a way to, I think churches need to confess 
uh, and get on their knees openly, disarm themselves, humble themselves, prostrate themselves, and and confess broadly, even you know, regardless of whatever the individual church or congregation might have done, that organized religion has done great, great harm in many cases. I'm very good friends. I'm having lunch with him next week of um, a gentleman who um, leads a group uh, nationally of people recovering from religion. It literally, truly is a recovering support group. It is an international movement. He leads groups nationwide, you know, through Zoom. And so uh, on the one hand, you know, we can look at the data kind of clinically, uh, as you quoted it, and, and that's important, data matters. But beneath the data are human stories like yours. And um, the church has been so much in the mainstream of culture. The, you know, it, it last century, you know, lived through a time of plenty and milk and honey in terms of the, the cultural waves. Well, now those waves are going in the opposite direction. There are, and there are, the church is facing real cultural headwinds. I, I hope and pray that more churches will confess their sins and, and acknowledge that organized religion in general um, has failed many, many people. I think that's the beginning of a rebound. Uh, this uh, two weeks and this morning I was working on a banner for our booth at the Charlotte Pride Festival coming up in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. 300,000 people will pack uptown Charlotte. And uh, I was writing out a banner, you know, inviting people to come and tell the church what we needed to hear on a, on a you know, butcher board, white blank piece of paper. I think the church needs to show that kind of vulnerability. And uh, that's not the kind of work that everybody feels called to do. But uh, the more churches that can do that, each in their own way, even if it doesn't mean they are personally confessing or individually confessing their sin. But Presbyterians confess our sins every week corporately, which is to say, Every week, we better acknowledge to the Lord that we've messed up that week in maybe micro ways or maybe in in the kind of systemic institutional macro ways that we're talking about. Confess those sins to a God of grace, not a, not a lightning bolt damnation God, but a God of grace. Uh, and then share that God of grace and love and inclusion and justice and bias for the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the, the weak, you know, highlight that story. Look uh, unblinkingly at who Jesus really was. And I think that's our way back. Uh, but it's going to take peeling off lots of layers of uh, incrustation and bad teaching and bad tradition. And unfortunately, almost, you know, Bending over, well, I don't say bending over backwards, but uh, going to the world and and in our each in our own way, confessing that we didn't always get it right. Right. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking, <laughs> and I'm glad you you said so much because it, the 
I don't know, my tears were just welling up in my eyes as you were saying that, because I don't think there's ever been a death, a relationship ending, or anything Uh else that broke my heart. Uh Um, Harder, harder than that. And, Uh um, you know, the crazy part of it is, um, in my lowest times in my life, who came rushing back, but people, you know, who grew up with me, who are my peers who grew up in church and they've always been there, but that loss of community, I guess was hard. And I guess what you're saying just gives me a little bit more hope because what my fear is, my fear is I walk into the church door and I hear something or something happens. It's almost like it's PTSD. And then my fear is that, I would never even consider going back again. And it, one of the things, it, it reminds me of something, a book that I read not too long ago. It's by a guy named Robert Jones, and it's called White Too Long. Uh-huh. And it's about, it's about the church. He, he, he ran a, I'm not going to get the name of it right, but it was a public research institute focused on religion. And in the, introduction and early chapters of the book of the book he talks about like the 1844 um triennial convention of the baptist Uh and this is like a space where they were like much of the country fighting over the issue of slavery and a lot of the northern baptists did not think slave holders should be ordained and i think as i recall they kind of fought to a stalemate but eventually this issue happened where there was this guy, I think his name was John Reeve, who they wouldn't ordain for a mission because he was a slave owner. Uh. And that split the split uh. the church. Because uh, I think it was that year, the next year, a group went to Augusta, Georgia. They founded this what became the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. And, you know, threw their hat in politics on the side of the Confederacy. And I thought to myself... You know, like maybe some of these issues, you know, that idea of white too long, some of these issues are deeper than I think people realize because I had never really thought about the idea of that the church I grew up in has been in a multi-hundred year recovery that it was founded on slavery, essentially. So that my expectations for, for something that, in this example has been white too long, maybe require a little bit more patience. That is gracious of you. Um, I, I think we need both uh, grace, but also urgency, uh, particularly when it comes to the church and race. Uh, you asked me to describe you know, your, your, your average Presbyterian earlier in the conversation, and what I should have said is nine out of ten of us are white. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA, which is the main body, there are some other Presbyterian uh, denominations, but they've split off over more conservative issues and gone more conservative. So we're at 90% white. You know, we're the quote-unquote progressive main body. But, but absolutely, uh, we have to completely... Uh, rethink and critique uh, what church looks like for if it is ever not going to be the most segregated hour uh, in America. Right now, even for 
people of color who would be inclined to come to an integrated church or even a white majority church, they're going to walk into a place that has changed, uh, you know, one or two things and thinks that they're completely remade when in fact, you know, white traditions of worship and black traditions of worship are very, very different. Neither is better or worse, but very, very different. And, um, you know, we, we practice a blended worship here at Caldwell, but it still reflects, you know, John Calvin and John Knox and the Protestant Reformation. There are also black Presbyterian churches here. There are more black Presbyterian churches in Charlotte than anywhere that, that practice higher worship. But there's also other black Presbyterian churches and all other stripes that, you know, practice a, a, a much different worship style that is more inviting and welcoming to people of color. And so um, the church has an enormous amount of work to do to critique its liturgy, its music, its leadership, its theology, how it reads scripture, whose voices it listens to, what alternative views of scripture it's willing to embrace, you know, whether it be womanist or feminist or uh, what, what have you, but, you know, put away all the old dead white men commentaries and embrace new voices. And we've got so much work to do in that regard. If we're ever going to deconstruct 11 a.m. as the most segregated hour in America, which is what Dr. King calls it. And, uh, you know, I think the good news is if we can confess and re-attract younger generations and then give them the keys, they can do a great deal for us. Uh, my daughter's generation, your generation and everything in between, they just see the world differently. And um, so, you know, we we have to center those voices more and more. Uh, so we've got we've got a lot of work to do, but it's you know it's a wonderful time to be in the church in that regard. Um, uh, it's it's hard in a lot of traditional churches because they're going to be I think hitting the wall in some ways in the next decade or two. You know, the, the, all, all the stewardship data is that it takes ten current members to make up in in terms of a, an individual pledge what uh, the greatest generation used to pledge in a church. Oh, 10 wow. to 1 ratio. So there's a reckoning coming. And uh, we're going to have to reimagine ourselves um, in some pretty profound ways. And I say that not to say that a church needs to swing right or left politically or anything like that, but that, you know, we need to we need to take risks, break glass, throw spaghetti up on the wall, relax and uh, experiment uh, if we're ever going to kind of shake off the uh, complacency and comfort that we still have in our bones from the height of Christendom in the 1960s. Yeah. One of the things that you said in your book, and I might get it right, I might not, but there was one line where you talked about how one of your questions for God, if you ever met him, was going to be, why are we such tribal people? Yeah. Um, and you talk a lot about multiculturalism and intersectionality, which is not a, a topic I hear many ministers, although some, right, yeah. talking about. I, what, what, what inspired you to, to explore that? Well, um, God's big joke of calling me to this church, we are about 20% plus or minus people of color. We're about 20 plus percent LGBTQIA. 
We're about 50% non-Presbyterian in background. We're about 80% wounded or recovering from some bad church experience. And um, here I come, this poster boy for white privilege, and, you know, exit exit bank left and end up over here. I didn't have any peers to talk to. There are no other churches like this one anywhere around. And so early on, I said, I've got to find other people who can coach me through what I call the constructive tension of living in diversity. Um, Because especially when you've got a lot of folks that have come to a church because they've been hurt elsewhere, you've got to be super sensitive to acknowledging whatever wounds they have. And sometimes the wounds of a person of color and the black experience in America are different from the wounds of a trans or a queer person. And how do you respond to all that, much less your average, you know, white middle class couple? And so uh, I needed to go find other churches and, and came across this phrase, intersectionality, which Kimberly Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw gives us. Uh, that shakes us out of the idea that we're all just one or two things. Uh, but in fact, uh, and, and, and in fact, America has been built around um, one particular intersection, and that is white, male, affluent, powerful patriarchy, when in fact, you know, there are rich gifts in people who come in very different packages with very, very different perspectives, very, very different backgrounds very different lessons to, to share and for us to learn. And so I spent my doctoral thesis hunting down the 10 other churches in the PCUSA, my denomination, that had that same demographic kind of 2020 split and said, you know, and I, I just researched them and said, how's it going for you and how do you deal with that? And so that doctoral work kind of led to the book in, in part um, because uh, I, what I found in these churches was that they had all uh, or most of them had been big, prominent, powerful churches like mine, had gotten close enough to the tomb to look in like this one did and then come back with a really new perspective to take risk and to center the other and to pay attention to the margins and you know, try to recreate themselves. And uh, so that's kind of what what led to the book. It was my own kind of semi-desperate need to find other pastors that led congregations like mine. And and indeed, I found about 10 others nationwide. So it's really like this whole thing was a, it sounds like it was a transformation for you as much as it was... um, a transformation for the for the for the church, and I was going to ask you, how is Caldwell doing now? And do you think that there is a roadmap for other churches, things that we can learn from Caldwell, or even things that are outside of Caldwell? That I, it, it, because it, I think it goes to that that question that I have, that burning question yeah. about you know can the church be saved, and if it can, what value could it uh, lead to, or lend to those those pressing issues of our 
lost sense of belonging and broken community. And, and, you know, you mentioned individualism, which I think there's a value to that, right? Individual rights and things yeah. like that. But I think there's a loneliness to it being the only thing. I think it's right. Um, and, and I think you put your finger right, right on it. Certainly not lifting up Caldwell over any others. Certainly the, that book lifted up the stories of these 10 other churches and the amazing things. Uh, they have done. And so their own stories were very educational for me. And that was why I wrote that book was to try and help other churches imagine uh, a way forward, not only one prescribed way, but encourage them that maybe there is life one step outside of the tomb. But I, I think this whole conversation comes full circle, Jason. Our, our, so much of my current thinking, especially after the pandemic and its separation uh, of us and its disruption of, of the church is that my hope and my dream and certainly my desire for Caldwell Presbyterian Church is that we really understand the importance of community, an open community that indeed welcomes and values all kinds of people, but whatever community that it be, you know, diverse and, and yet cohesive in a way. Uh, but if, if we can reform and reimagine and reclaim community, make a place where people do have the word you've already used several times, a sense of belonging. And then within that, that leads to a sense of purpose, however you want to call it, calling, meaning, value, duty, purpose, the data shows that we are happier and healthier when we have those things. And so not to veer away from the gospel, but if we just simply think about it in, in sociological and psychological terms, you know, America is desperately needing. And in fact, we individually are better off if we have community, a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. We live happier, healthier longer lives. And um, it's it's just that simple and, and just that complicated. So, you know, if, if we can somehow find a way to find common ground, you know, not hang all our laundry on dogma and doctrine, confess we sometimes get it wrong and that we need new voices to lead us and then invite and center those voices uh, to help reform us as community. And then, you know, for churches, we follow the gospel. We look at Jesus. Jesus tells us what to do uh, very simply, you know, just <laughs> love and live and forgive and uh, occasionally disrupt the powers that be when they get overly aggressive um, and challenge the rich and look after the poor. It doesn't have to be a whole lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. Well, this has definitely been a moving conversation for me. <laughs> no, I just think of everything that you're saying, and it gives me a little bit of hope, I guess. You know, because I, I, I don't think before coming across your work or even listening to what you're saying today, you know, I don't know if I saw a path, right, to the reintegration of 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 the church and to our society. And I wanted to give you a chance um, 
if you wanted to throw any closing remarks or thoughts, uh, you know, what message or what your clarion call to people would be, I would, I would love to hear. Wow. Well, thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation for me, too. And uh, in- invoke Dad's spirit together with us. It's, it's been just a, a wonderful gift. Um, you know, I, I, I guess uh, I feel the pain in your journey and in your voice. I'll just default and connect with all that we've been talking about to a sermon I preached yesterday. Uh, it, it goes back to Old Testament uh, as Moses has led the children of Israel through the wilderness and is about to deliver them into the promise of land, this land of milk and honey and abundance. And all God says is take care of each other. That's all, you know, if you love me by loving others. Uh, and of course, Israel forgets and America forgets. And we still forget that we live in a, a land of milk and honey and plenty and abundance. And we don't use it to care for all. And the theologian I quoted says that, you know, whether you think about the Old Testament Torah in that regard or, or, or Jesus's great commandment, it's love God by loving each other. And mm-hmm. uh, everything after that is kind of, you know, can can be discussed and and talked about. But if we could somehow get back to that and think about, as this theologian said, our, you know, what God gives us is um, a gift and a promise and a challenge, a gift, a promise and a challenge. And they're all connected. And we, if we, you know, we are, God does offer us a gift. God does make us a promise. Uh, but that comes with a challenge to take care of each other. If we could somehow recenter on that, which is not always easy. And, and I do not mean to hold Caldwell Church up as a paradigm because we, we get it wrong plenty of times. But if, if we could make that space attractive again, and meaningful again, maybe, maybe that's a way forward. Mm-hmm. Well, that was powerful. Thank you. Thanks a lot for uh, joining for this conversation. It's been meaningful for me, and I'm sure it'll be meaningful for others. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. <laughs>